Howdy, partners. You're listening to Conversations with Jacob, hosted by my good friend, Jacob Waller. Make sure to check out the podcast where podcasts are available and check out the video version on YouTube. You can follow us on social media. Facebook is Conversations with Jacob. Twitter is at CWJ Podcast. And you can visit our website, conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. Hey, you got a show idea? Maybe a guest suggestion? Email us at conversationswithjacob at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Jacob Waller. Welcome back to another episode of Conversations with Jacob. Today is episode number 31. And uh, today we got a good episode for you, and we're talking sleep and mental health. Um, but before we get to our guest this week, I, I want to give a few podcast plugs like always. Uh, um, uh, on social media, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash conversations with Jacob on YT. Twitter is on Twitter is CWJ Podcast. Our podcasting platforms include iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Amazon, uh, we're on Audible, and we're on YouTube. Uh, uh, of course, if you got a question, a guest suggestion, or was a guest suggestion, or, uh, just want to send an email, conversationswithjacob at gmail.com, and our website is conversationswithjacobpodcast.weebly.com. You can find upcoming guests, past guests, and look, and a little section on there called Post from the Host. Um, and joining me this week is Barry Krakow. He's a world-leading medical authority on treating sleep disorders and mental illness. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Jacob. So did I pronounce your last name right? There are so many different pronunciations. We'll <laughs> go with whatever comes to mind. All right. Sounds great. Yeah. Um so, um, I was, I guess, uh, the first question would be, uh, and how did you become, um, uh, involved with the, uh, with the sleeping, uh, uh, I, was, I guess, the sleeping topic? Right. I'm an internal medicine doctor, internist, and, uh, I did all my training in the 1980s for internal medicine, did some work in emergency medicine. But I got involved in the field of sleep medicine, working with a group of psychiatrists who were treating people with chronic nightmares. And it turns out nightmares are a very complicated sleep disorder. They're not just a psychiatric problem, but you may know that many people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, would have chronic nightmares. And so from that uh, initial area, nightmare treatment research, I learned so much about the complexity of sleep that we began researching it in all kinds of patients with mental health problems, particularly trauma survivors. And what we discovered was they had nightmares, they had insomnia, but they also had sleep apnea. And that was a big surprise. And that's what my book, Life Saving Sleep, is about, the fact that so many people, when they think about sleep, whether they have mental health problems, physical health problems, or just you know, sleep problems, so many people get caught up in this idea that it's about counting the number of hours. And it's all about the number of hours of sleep. And what we've learned time and time again 
is that to really solve a sleep problem, you have to dig deep and look into the quality of a person's actual sleep because the quality of sleep drives almost every sleep problem that exists. All right. Now, can poor sleep damage your brain? Absolutely. And that's the key. In other words, if you think about sleep, you probably would go, well, I get into bed, I go to sleep, I sleep six hours, seven, eight hours. And and you're thinking after all the stuff you read or maybe even hear on other podcasts, you hear things like, uh, well, am I getting enough sleep? Well, see, that's that's actually not the right question. The right question is, am I getting enough good sleep? Now, why why do I say that term and why is that so important to your question? Because you're asking about the brain. And, of course, that's where we sleep. Our brain is what's sleeping. And what occurs there, and which really very few healthcare professionals recognize so far in you know what we call new research, the brain has its own waste removal system. And it can actually remove harmful molecules from your body, just like the kidneys and the liver detoxify your body so you're healthy and you run normally. Well, it turns out this brain waste disposal system occurs while you're sleeping. That's when it's most active. Therefore, if you put this all together, that means if somebody doesn't sleep well, doesn't sleep long enough, doesn't sleep deep enough, their brain is not being cleaned. And when your brain doesn't get clean, that is why you would wake up the next day and feel like crap and sometimes even feel like you're getting sick. Very common for people who have poor sleep to get up and say, gosh, I, I feel like I'm I'm getting the flu or I, I, I must have something wrong with me because why do I feel so poorly? Why do I have so little energy? Why do I have aches and pains? Again, it mirrors having an infection. So poor sleep quality is the go-to concept. If somebody's got a poor sleep quality issue, that's a huge red flag that something is wrong with their sleep. Now, for people that have a problem sleeping, does uh, what kind of affects them from having a good sleep? Does food or soda or, or maybe light play a factor into that? Well, everything you can imagine has a role in your sleep. In other words, if you have too much light in the room, that could keep you awake. Um, if you eat too much too close to bedtime or spicy foods, that could keep you awake. But if you know the term red herring, you know, false flags, things that steer people in a direction that's not really as important, what's more important than even your environment, although believe me, your environment is important, is asking the individual how they actually sleep and what they feel like in the morning. Let me give you one example that I found over the years is the, probably the most telling example of how we understand people that have bad sleep. So, Jacob, tell me, what do you think are the most likely reasons people over the age of 40 wake up at night to use the bathroom to pee, what would you assume to be the most likely reasons? Uh, maybe they had too much to drink before bed. That's number one. Absolutely. Anything else come to mind? Like 
<laughs> bladder, <laughs> bladder, prostate problems, yeah. medic- med- medications. Okay. Well, here's a huge surprise. And when we learned about this, I first learned about this in the 1990s. It was a shocker. I, I just didn't, could not believe it was true. The arguably the greatest cause of why we wake up at night to use the bathroom, and if it's not the greatest, it's it's number two, but it's up there near the top. It's sleep breathing problems. Now you go, wait a second, wait a second. Your breathing is your lungs. Going to the bathroom is your kidneys. What what are you talking about, Doctor Craco? What do you mean you wake up at night to pee? Well, here's the thing: when you put a strain on your uh, uh, breath, where you're trying to breathe in and you can't because that's what a sleep breathing disorder is. When you have that problem, that strain of breathing actually puts a strain on your heart. And eventually, your heart reacts to this strain. And get this, your heart releases its own diuretic, a water pill, is naturally released inside your heart during the night if you snore or if you have other kinds of sleep breathing issues. So that diuretic goes to the kidneys and says, hey, kidneys, make more water. So you start passing more water. I have seen thousands of cases of people who came to us for all kinds of sleep problems. They didn't know any of this. And after they were treated, more than half of the thousand, more than half, no longer woke up at night to use the bathroom. The other half saw an improvement in their condition, but they may not have eliminated the problem. It's very common for sleep apnea patients to have two, three, four, five trips to the bathroom at night. And they're saying, what's going on? Well, see, now they're actually hearing what we call a physiological, a physical explanation when in fact most of them would think, well, maybe I drank too much water, maybe I've got a bladder problem, my doctor told me my prostate was too large. All of that can be true, but not as powerful as what we just talked about. And so that's a fascinating point where the person can say, you mean I can evaluate these symptoms in myself, and then I can begin to make a decision about what's wrong with my sleep. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, do you think that that uh, that uh, that pills to make you sleep work, or do you think that they're a bad thing? In general, most people who try pills to sleep say they don't work. So it's very common for people to say, "I tried pills." You know, there's like tons of over-the-counter medicines. There's prescription medicines. That doesn't mean they can't work. And that doesn't mean they don't work great for some people. So that's wonderful if somebody's got a medicine and it works for them. But the average person is often trying different medications. They're trying different dosages. They're trying combinations. And this is because they do not really understand how sleep works. And so it's a great question you're asking because most people think that sleep is something that you can control with a pill. And so, therefore, why not have a pill? It turns out there are much more powerful ways, as I describe at length in my book, Life-Saving Sleep. There are non-drug treatments that are very powerful. These treatments are so powerful, they help people get off of using pills. 
But here's the one part I want to get across that's so important. We've published studies on a, a sample of patients, about 1,300 patients, in something called the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Everybody's heard of the Mayo Clinic. And in this study, we looked for people who came to our sleep center complaining about my sleeping pills are not working. My sleeping pills are not working. Can you help me, doctor? Well, when we studied these people, and they've been on their pills for years, and many of them combinations of pills, over-the-counter, prescription. When we studied them in a sleep laboratory, greater than 90% of them had a sleep-breathing disorder. So a sleep-breathing disorder means your sleep is fragmented all night long because your body hates not breathing. And so you wake up constantly back and forth between wake and sleep, and that's why the pill doesn't work, and the pill doesn't treat sleep-disordered breathing. So in that sense, this is a very crucial point for your listeners, and again, I go over this in, in great detail in Life-Saving Sleep. If you're taking a pill and it's not helping you, it's not consistently effective if you're constantly switching to other pills, that is a huge red flag. You may have this sleep-breathing condition, and I tell anybody who is, quote-unquote, not responding well to sleeping pills, they need to get a sleep study. Now, and how... And do you got a reason or maybe can explain why uh, some people can go to sleep faster than others? Well, in general, when we think about the psychological aspect of sleep, because there is both, we've been talking about a lot of physiologic stuff. Let's switch a little bit to more psychological if you want. The psychological aspects of sleep are just as interesting. And what they relate to with one specific, you know, target is that when you go to bed and you feel like your day is over, that you finished the day, that you're satisfied with your day, that usually means that emotionally you don't have any unfinished business. You say, well, I had a good day. I, I got this done. I got that done. I had I had some uh, good experiences with my friends and family. And you're not sitting there thinking about, oh, gosh, like, what happened today? And you're also not thinking about, oh, my goodness, what's going to be, what's that meeting going to be like tomorrow? All of that is just out of your mind. It just doesn't happen. That person is what we call a healthy emotional processor. It's somebody who knows how to deal with the emotional experiences they have and let them go and, and you know, resolve them to their satisfaction and enjoy their day, you know, not holding grudges, not carrying around a bunch of judgments, but getting into bed, maybe even saying a prayer and going to sleep. And that's it. So that's the sign of a very healthy sleeper. People who take longer to go to sleep, which is what you're driving at are the individuals who have difficulty with that. They can't close out the day. They have unfinished business. They are obviously worriers. They may suffer from anxiety, depression, PTSD. But the bottom line is the way their mind works, it won't turn off. And that's the classic finding. I'm sorry, that's the classic uh, um, sign that a person will say to a doctor, I just can't turn off my mind. 
That's why I need the sleeping pill. But what they don't realize is they could learn how to address that problem psychologically. And that means learning how to get more satisfaction out of the day and learning how not to worry. That, for some people, of course, requires psychotherapy. But the point is that sleep is so amenable to treatment that there's a technique called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is just a fancy term for providing somebody with a variety of instructions to say, well, if this happens, do that. And if that happens, do this. And let me give you the best example. If you get into bed and you're not sleepy, but you're tired, what's going to happen? You're just going to lie there. (laughs) And so that's a great clue to how you want to cue your sleep, meaning don't get into bed when you're tired. Wait until you feel a little bit sleepy, then get into bed, and you're much more likely to fall asleep. Same thing can occur in the middle of the night. You could wake up and go, oh, I'm really sleepy. Okay, roll over, go back to sleep. But what if you wake up and you're wide awake? What are you going to do? Are you going to lie there in bed for hours waiting to go back to sleep? Well, that won't work, and it actually makes the problem worse because now you're teaching yourself this bed is a place to lie awake and worry. And so in that case, the person has to commit, and this is a hard one, they have to commit to getting up out of bed, doing something different until they feel sleepy again, and then they can get back into bed and go to sleep. So you see, that's a non-drug approach, and yet it's the most powerful approach out there. Everybody who's ever done the science on it knows that what I've just described, those instructions and a few more, they're more powerful than sleeping pills. And why? Because you, your own mind, your own body is taking control of your sleep and fixing the problem. Now, uh, would you say that people uh, kind of has a hard time sleeping because because when they go to bed and sometimes uh, they're on their phone or maybe on their computer and they're they're kind of, I don't know, kind of makes them stay awake longer? That's a great question because... It's really a two-parter. Is it those tools that are stimulating them? Or is it that the individual wasn't really ready to go to sleep? They got into bed looking forward to having fun on their phone or their laptop or the TV or the radio, whatever. And they're going, well, this is my routine. I like it. And you know something? There's nothing wrong with that routine with one big exception. You can't do that for hours in bed and then expect to fall asleep. If you do, what are you teaching yourself? That the bed is a place to look at your phone. So in the olden days, <laughs> way back when, probably before you were born, no, just kidding, the, the concept was take a book to bed with you. So you have a book. You read it for five minutes, ten minutes. Your eyes got heavy. You put the book down. Sometimes you fell asleep with a book on your chest. That's that's awesome. But the phone and the laptop is different. It's just too stimulating. And if you bring it there, you do risk the chance that you're going to go on for more and more minutes. And next thing you know, if you even don't have insomnia, it's just you didn't get enough sleep because you said, well, I was having too much fun. Why go to sleep? So for those people, they have to go back to the old school. 
and they have to ask themselves the question, would they be willing to read a book, a real book? You know what real books are, right? It's a real book, <laughs> not a not a Kindle, just a real book. Have it in your hands. Don't have any electronics. And most most people, not everybody, but most people, when they do that, they will get sleepy and then they can doze off. So that's an easier, more effective approach. Oh, absolutely. And the reason I asked that question is because I kind of do the same thing. So well, don't don't most of us in this 21st century, we have things we say, oh, I didn't do that. I think I'll take the phone with me to bed tonight. I'll check it out. Next thing you know, 30 minutes later, 40. Hey, wait a second. Wasn't I supposed to go to sleep? <laughs> yeah. Now, how does sleep have, how does sleep have mental health and kind of come together? Well, all that we've talked about so far is describing the fact that Sleep has these these uh, steps you take, you know, to help yourself get to sleep. But yet there's physical problems that might interfere and then there are psychological problems that would interfere. And so what happens is this simple. Number one, your brain has to work each day as effectively as possible. But if you don't sleep and you didn't get the brain clean properly and you didn't restore your energy because that's what sleep does for you. How are you going to function? I mean, if anybody doesn't understand this, like if they don't have a mental health problem, I say to them, okay, do you want to understand what a mental health patient is going through? Stay up all night tonight. Don't go to sleep at all. Now you go function the next day. And people who have done that in a variety of circumstances know that without caffeine or stimulants, it is really hard on the system to try to operate. Many things go wrong. Well, most mental health patients suffer these problems, insomnia, nightmares, sleep apnea, another condition called restless legs and leg jerks. All these things are covered in the book, Life-Saving Sleep, which, by the way, is available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. So if they have all these sleep problems, it means that every single night they're being assaulted in their sleep by all of this stuff going on whether it's a breathing condition, whether it's a bad dream, whether it's awakenings, whether it's not being able to go back to sleep. And with all of that energy being used up, the person is not getting their energy restored. Now the next day they get up, they're tired, they're exhausted. They've got to use caffeine just to get going. Then the caffeine irritates them because they're sensitive and they get anxiety from it. And the day goes up and down like that with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, you name it. And these individuals then have cognitive impairment. They have difficulty with their memory, with their concentration, with their attention. And this can go on week after week, month after month, year after year. And they go to a doctor who simply says, oh, well, you're depressed. Take this pill. You're anxious. Take this pill. You have PTSD. Get this psychotherapy. But rarely are they talking about, hey, we need to get you into a sleep center. We need to have you read Dr. Krako's book, Life-Saving Sleep, along with my other books. By the way, I want to mention I have a website, BarryKrakoMD.com, where I have a number of videos and other books that I sell that talk about different treatments for insomnia, for nightmares and sleep breathing problems. And I also have a Substack newsletter at FastAsleep.Substack.com. And in that newsletter, I post about once a week something new that's going on in the field of sleep. 
So if you sign up, it's free. You just get an automatic, um, you know, email every week showing what I'm uh, commenting on. All right. And, um, when you was talking about how, how when we have jerks in our sleep, what does that, um, is that because of lack of sleep or is that, you know, tenants that the brain is, is working or? The condition of restless legs and leg jerks is a very tricky, complex condition that to this day, most research in the field of sleep doesn't actually understand it. We know that it happens. We know that people are very uncomfortable from restless legs. We know that people that restless legs is when you're awake. Leg jerks is when you're sleeping and your legs are kicking and moving. We know that these conditions interfere with your sleep. We know people have a lot of symptoms. People who have restless leg problems have more anxiety, more depression, more post-traumatic stress. There's even a greater risk of suicidal thinking and suicidal behaviors if you have this restless leg condition. The good news is, despite our not really understanding the condition, other than to describe it, there are many medications that do work to tamp down these restless leg jerks and restless legs and leg jerks. And there's also uh, neurostimulating uh, devices coming on the market that might be able to treat it as well. And that's a very big deal because as you get older, it's very, very common that people who are over the age of 60 and 70 start getting these conditions, restless legs and leg jerks. So it's a, a incredibly common sleep disorder in the elderly. Now, and what causes us to have nightmares? Well, nightmares is where I got my start in sleep medicine. And, of course, the original thinking about nightmares, and it's still true and it makes sense, is you went through some kind of difficult experience in your life. Uh, in the case of PTSD, it's traumatizing. It's it's scary. It's frightening. It's life-threatening. And that, therefore, is something you dream about. And that's not a surprise because the human organism is more than capable of being shocked by something and then turning that around into a story in the brain to try to remember, to try to understand it better, so you have a dream. So that's the most common reason why people have bad dreams. But what we learned in our work over the years was that even if that's the reason you first had the nightmare, the nightmare often takes on a life of its own, and it actually becomes almost like a learned behavior where your brain simply reacts to any stressor, even a mild stressor, and goes, all right, well, I'm having another nightmare tonight. And so that means that instead of approaching nightmares as something where you only have to go back and look at the trauma, we develop a technique called imagery rehearsal therapy, where we teach people how to work directly with their nightmares. And, and do certain visualization exercises in their own mind's eye, and that will reduce bad dreams and nightmares. So again, a very powerful non-drug treatment, imagery rehearsal therapy. It's been around now for over uh, 35 years. It's the number one non-drug treatment for chronic nightmares. It's extremely powerful, extremely effective. Um, you'll find many sleep centers um, have uh, doctors and therapists that know how to use it. 
you find many military mental health professionals know how to use it. Again, it's called IRT, Imagery Rehearsal Therapy. Now, for the people that's listening, and if they have a hard time sleeping, and how can they sleep better tonight? Well, that's a tough one because we wouldn't know what is driving that. Like if we said, what are the most common reasons why somebody has a sleep problem? We really would want them to spend a week, not one night, but a week saying, well, what can I evaluate? And I have a whole inventory of this, you know, in the book, Life-Saving Sleep, where you ask a series of questions. For example, how do I feel during the daytime tells me more about what my problem is at night, but you have to learn how to actually interpret that. So, for example, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning with a dry mouth, you should ask yourself, wait, why did I wake up with a dry mouth? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that suggests there's something going on with your breathing. What if you had multiple awakenings during the night? What would you say? Do you go, oh, I maybe have this breathing problem. Maybe I have restless legs. Maybe I have learned to just be a poor sleeper and, and I don't really like my bed anymore. So my bed's the place where I go and I wake up a lot. In other words, that question requires a lot more investigation on the part of the individual. They obviously, they can go to their primary care doctor, but unfortunately that doctor is often going to say, here's some sleeping pills. They can go to a mental health professional and they're going to say, well, let's do some psychotherapy. But they can go to a sleep doctor who's going to do a much more thorough evaluation to say, well, here's the psychological things that are going on. And here are the physiological things that are going on. And I tell people both are important. And so to answer your question sort of in the long term, it's when you're thinking about getting a better night of sleep, ask yourself about both sides of the equation. If you think you're going to have a bad night of sleep tonight, ask yourself, is it for psychological reasons? Is it for physical reasons? And try to make a list on both accounts because you'll learn a lot more that way and a lot faster on how to treat the problems and get a better night of sleep. So you're saying that we wake up and have a dry mouth is because of breathing and not because we're thirsty. Well, we're obviously thirsty, but most people who sleep normally do not open their mouth while they are sleeping. Most people who have a breathing disorder have a reflex because they're not getting enough air in, so they suddenly open their mouth and don't even realize it. It's called mouth breathing. And mouth breathing, of course, is going to lead to a dry mouth. Uh-huh. Another, another tip would be waking up at night, waking up in the morning with a headache. So you're not supposed to wake up in the morning with a headache, but if you do, that would suggest something is going on with your carbon dioxide levels in your brain. Because that's how you get a headache in the morning if you haven't blown off enough of the carbon dioxide, which happens in a sleep breathing disorder. Now, and how many hours do we need to sleep? Plus, plus the, uh, you know. I love. Yeah, go ahead. I love that that question comes so far at the end of the interview. Because, <laughs> because no, no, it's great because it's the, it's, it's the worst question of all in sleep medicine. And the reason it's the worst question is, 
we couldn't possibly know how many hours of sleep anybody needs until we find out what we began with, the quality of their sleep. So, for example, I know people, I've treated patients who have horrible sleep quality, okay? One person over here, Joe, he sleeps 11 hours a night. He's got horrible sleep quality. Over here, I've got Mary, and she sleeps four hours a night. They both have the same problem. They have horrible sleep quality, but one person just keeps sleeping and sleeping and sleeping, trying to catch up. The other person is so sensitive to the horrible sleep quality, they just keep waking up and waking up and then quit. They say, well, forget it. I'm done. Four hours, I'm done. So that's why we can never know what somebody's actual correct number is until they've evaluated. Now, if you said somebody's a, somebody comes to you and says, well, I'm a normal sleeper. I always raise my eyebrows when I hear somebody say that because I go, are you sure about that? Well, let's just say the person's a normal sleeper. Well, most normal sleepers, truly normal, which means people who have a lot of energy, they sleep great, they feel great in the morning. They probably don't drink caffeine, or if they do, very little. They don't have a dip in the afternoon. Those kinds of people usually get between six and seven and a half hours of sleep a night. So I think those are probably the most normal types of people you would meet. Everybody else is off the charts. They could be three hours, four hours, five hours, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Why? Because there's something so disturbed about this sleep fragmentation that we're talking about, that that is governing all of their behavior. And so many people we found when they, for example, treated their sleep apnea, they would end up saying, in either case like we just described, Joe would say, oh, I'm not sleeping 11 hours anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping nine hours a night. Mary would say, oh, I'm not sleeping four hours anymore. I'm sleeping five and a half, six hours a night. So you go, wait, wait, how did that happen? All about sleep quality being corrected enabled those changes. Now, uh, where can people buy your books and can you, can you tell us about your books? Sure. I've written five books about sleep starting in 1992 when we wrote a book about nightmares and uh, written another book about nightmares about 10 years later and then uh, two other books about uh, sleep in general and insomnia. The latest book is called Life Saving Sleep, New Horizons and Mental Health Treatment. It just came out a few months ago. Uh, it's on Amazon and wherever books are sold. You can also buy the Kindle version right now. It's on that special 90 day cycle for Amazon where you can get the Kindle or the ebook reader, uh, only there up until I think the middle of August or no, middle of September. And then, um, and then it goes, it'll go Kindle to all the other locations. Um, the book is about really my experiences working at a sleep center that specialize in the treatment of mental health patients with sleep disorders from 2005, I'm sorry, 2002 to 2020. So almost 20 years of practice where that was our specialty. And the book shows people from the get-go 
that they've got to focus on sleep quality if they want to solve their sleep problems in the context of mental health. And the problem is that so many mental health professionals don't know this. That's why I'm delighted you're having me on your podcast because, you know, people hear so much wrong information, just inaccurate or incomplete information about sleep and mental health. They can go to all kinds of websites. They can listen to other podcasts. They can read books. They can watch TV. And they keep hearing the same thing. They'll hear things like, well, I thought you're supposed to get seven hours of sleep. Or I thought that um, sleeping pills can actually make things better. Or I thought I thought if I treated my depression, my sleep would get better. These are very common myths. And they get people very confused and get people into thinking that sleep is not anywhere near as important as it is. Life-saving sleep is that title for that reason. You can save people's lives by fixing their sleep problems. We know for certain that suicide rates have climbed over the last decades, and in part because people's sleep is getting worse. And as sleep gets worse, people engage in more suicidal thinking, more depression, more pessimism, more despondency, all of these things that get people feeling hopeless. Well, you turn somebody's sleep around, they now have more energy. They can cope. They can become happier, or they can pursue happiness in a more effective way. So it's a very big deal to realize that sleep is its own independent problem in any, virtually any mental health problem. And therefore, psychotherapy and medications, while potentially quite valuable, I'm not at all knocking them or saying get off your medicines. I'm saying that's not the only treatment for your sleep problems. You really need to consider working with a sleep specialist or getting a sleep test or a great start, of course, is reading my book, Life-Saving Sleep, because so much of what a mental health patient would be suffering from is going to be covered in that book. Now, um, and where you was talking, you know, it got me thinking again. And what, and what is one of the craziest myths that you heard that people believe? Is it the one that you need like uh, six or seven hours of sleep? Yeah, the, the biggest thing that's holding back the other healthcare professions is focusing on the number of hours of sleep. That is the wrong way, literally the wrong way in over 95% of the situation. There are circumstances. There's no question. Like we talked about the people who shorten their sleep by using too much technology at night in bed. Sure. That's, that's insufficient sleep and they need to do something about that. So counting hours there makes sense. But most people with mental health problems, anxiety, depression, PTSD, they have much more serious problems than just looking at a phone in bed at night. Their sleep problems are very severe. They lead to other medical problems like high blood pressure, diabetes, as well as we said, the depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Uh, they learn, they, they lead to chronic fatigue. They lead to a condition called fibromyalgia where people have aches and pains. So it's crucial for individuals to realize, even though getting an extra half hour of sleep, say during a daytime nap, might make you feel better. And that's awesome. I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, why did you need that nap? 
what was going on with your sleep at night? Because a normal sleeper generally does not need to nap. And so napping is a big red flag, like, oh, well, maybe something is wrong with my sleep. What about the case of the person who can't nap? They're so exhausted and they have all this anxiety and post-traumatic stress, they can't lie down and sleep, but they're exhausted. Well, they should be asking themselves, why would PTSD, depression, and anxiety be the only cause of my exhaustion? Why isn't it my sleep? And if a doctor then tells me, oh, sleep more hours, that patient's going to go, well, I can't sleep more hours, number one. Number two, the pills don't work. And number three, I just heard this great podcast with Jacob and found out that my real problem is the quality of my sleep. And I want to know what we're going to do about the quality of my sleep. Absolutely. Uh, my final question is, uh, uh, the question is about, uh, it's about the test they do uh, when you sleep. Uh, and how accurate uh Oh, basically, I was at how accurate is uh, the test? Um, it's accurate for some things and less accurate for others. So let me just give you a quick yeah. rundown. Nowadays, ever since COVID and even a little bit before, they're trying to push these tests called home sleep tests. And it's really ironic because they don't measure sleep. It's called a home sleep test, but it's designed to measure breathing, but not sleep. So it's really a home breathing test. Now, some people can do that, and some people think it's really convenient because, hey, you don't have to go into a sleep lab, don't have to get hooked up with all these wires. But, you know, being in a sleep lab, getting hooked up to all those wires means more data. That's what makes it much more reliable. So I explained to mental health patients, they may have no other options. Nowadays, all these sleep centers are saying, home sleep test, home sleep test, and you may have to do it. But after that is done, the individual can still come forward and say, you know what, I I think we might have missed something or I want more information because here's the news. A sleep breathing disorder can be easy to diagnose if it's moderately severe. But if it's mild, And by the way, the word mild is misleading because even a mild sleep breathing disorder needs to be treated. If it's mild, a home sleep test may not pick it up. And so you want to go back to the lab or go to the lab and get it tested there. Same with what we talked about, restless legs and leg jerks. Sleep breathing problems show up every night that you have the problem. But restless legs and leg jerks could show up four nights out of the week and not every night. So you could go for a test and miss it. So both kinds of tests, home tests and lab tests, are needed. But for mental health patients, they're often going to benefit more by getting at least some of their testing done in the sleep lab at the sleep center. All right. Now, at the end of every episode, I would always ask my guests if they get any closing thoughts. So do you get any closing thoughts? My thoughts are that we're at the cusp of something very, very big in terms of a change in the mental health community. And it's going to be a step-by-step process. And it's wonderful that you're having me on this podcast because you're a part of what we call the sleep revolution, where individuals are going to finally recognize there's so much more to sleep that uh, can be dealt with far more successfully 
than trying to do it with a pill. And so I say to people, you can learn to sleep well and you can learn to prosper from that. But you really have to dig into it and recognize that sleep is this independent process that has tremendous power to rejuvenate the human organism. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Barry, I was on a thing for coming on the podcast to talk about sleep. Uh, maybe it's going to help some people. Well, I really appreciate your time, Jacob. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that wraps it up for this episode of Conversations with Jacob. Tune in in three weeks uh, for a Halloween special. That's with Laura Lee, you know, when she talks to the dead. So we'll be be uh, talking with her in three weeks from now. So until then, be safe. God bless. We'll catch you in the next episode.